everybody. Hi, everybody. Oh, thank you. Amplification. Um, hi. Uh, Didn't really process through. We're going to have to watch that video right before I came up here. Um, thank you. Uh, there's something about art, right? There's something about art that just expresses truth uh, in a way that's really powerful. You know, even thinking about the passage we're in this morning, sometimes, uh, sometimes you feel like the heart of the sermon is preached before you get up here. And, um, and I'll allude back to why I think that might be this morning, but thank you to the team that made all of that possible. And, um, and also, given that this is my first time up here preaching in, in uh, quite a while, just thank you. Um, I don't know what else to say. Uh, it's been a really, really hard season for our family, and um, we've been really well supported by this church, which is really an understatement. Thank you to the many who have filled in gaps. Um, for me, personally, uh, work-wise, professionally, but thank you uh, to the many, many who we will never, ever get to say uh, enough thank yous to who sent cards and um, texts and prayers and meals and all the rest uh, to us, um, in case you're like, what is this man talking about? Um, uh, my mom passed about a month ago, and uh, suddenly, um, not unexpectedly, she was fighting cancer, but fairly suddenly, fairly quickly, and so uh, we've been through it uh, as a family, the memorial in fact, was last Sunday, which was a, uh, a really uh, difficult, brutal, beautiful, necessary um, thing. Uh, some of you came to that, which just meant the world to us. And so, um, so yeah, just thank you. Um, it's good to be, uh, if you've ever been uh, in a place uh, of grief, it's like good to be among the people of God and also really hard in a way, and so uh, we've kind of had to feel that out. Uh, I don't know if I should be preaching this Sunday. I don't know if I'm ready. Um, we're going to find out. No, no. Um, no, it's it's more just kind of, yeah, I felt like, um, yeah, I just felt like, okay, there's a little bit of getting back to usual and a little bit of pulling back when you feel like you've reached your limits, and so um, so that's what we're going to do here today. Um, we are in this passage which speaks so beautifully, really the theme of this passage is, uh, is unity, unity in the church, and what the community of God's people is meant to look like. And there's really just kind of two main movements to the five verses that Mike just read. And one is the source of unity in the church, and then kind of showing you what, what does unity actually look like? What, what does it take? So what's the source of unity? And then what does it take? And this spoke to me and just even where, where our family is at this week. And so, um, yeah, was, was kind of proud. I was telling Tyler Stowell this before. Like, it was good to be this immersed in the Word this week. And so um, maybe the most important thing to understand about these verses, though, is how they're connected to what Jalen preached last week. So I'm actually going to jump back up to chapter 1, verse 27, and read down into and just kind of show you the connectedness. Could you actually put that up there, Mike? 127. He does it all. He reads scripture. He puts the scrolly Bible on the screen. He plans community meal. What a guy. What a guy. Let's read this. Uh, it says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And I won't pause on every phrase, but this, only let your manner of life be worthy. If you remember from our intro to the letter itself, 
I made an argument that this is really the thesis statement of the whole letter. That the whole point of what the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter, is trying to say is there's a manner of life that is in step with the truth of what we proclaim. There's a way of being together. This is that Greek word that sounds a lot like politics. And he purposely chooses this word that even in the original language sounds like politics because he's saying you're surrounded by a certain way of doing things in the culture that you're in at that time, the, the Roman Empire. But the way that you're to do things, you're to have a different kind of politics. And, and really all the word that politics means is, is it's not a word that necessarily speaks of the government. It's how people interact together in a society. And so he's saying, let your way of being together, let your politics be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And as Jalen said last week, we're already getting into this idea that the politics of the people of God is to be one of unity, to be one of actual togetherness, a, a one of harmonious ways of living together in contrast to the world. Next verses. And not frightening anything by your opponents is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you, I'll keep going, that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him. Here we go. You should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Okay, now, now check out how, verse, or how chapter 2 starts. So, right, that's a, that's a therefore in the original language. So, given what I just said, you're to have a different kind of politics together, characterized by unity. This is a sign to the world that there's something different going on among you. This is a sign to the world that there is a kind of life that is present among you that the world does not have access to. Therefore, and he's going to deepen his call and command to how to live in the way that he's calling us to live. Here's what he says. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. I'll just stop there. Let's look at that first verse there. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. This is not a, if there is, let's hope there is, fingers crossed there is, this is a rhetorical, so if there is. The assumption, this is called a first-class conditional for you grammarians out there, is the assumption is what's being said, the if is true, so the, what comes next, the then is also to be true. So the if is definitely true. So he's not saying if, he's saying because these things are true. In light of the fact that these things are true, what are these things? It's encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, participation in the Spirit, affection, and sympathy. The first two words there, encouragement and comfort, are very similar words. They have very similar meanings. They, they have the idea of being, 
comforted and consoled in the midst of hardship. Very related ideas. Any participation in the Spirit, that's this beautiful Greek word um, that if you've been around church at all, you probably know. Participation is this word koinonia. This idea of community that goes beyond mere humans liking each other, hanging out, um, being friends, that there's this spiritual kind of bondedness that this word of koinonia. And it's possible because of the Spirit is what he's saying here. And then affection and sympathy. Scholars often argue, are these things that exist between the Philippians, between the people of God, or are these things that are sourced in God himself? And where most come down on that discussion, where I think the strongest argument is, is these are all things that are sourced in God. That these are things that we share because we share a common experience of who God is and what he does in our lives. That the source of our unity is not something that begins within us. It is something that begins within the heart of God himself. That God's acting upon us individually is what gives us what we need. It gives us sufficiency in order to be bonded together as his people. That's the source of our unity. God is the source of our unity. And specifically, what all of these words speak to is a kind of experience of God's ministry first to us. What binds the people of God together is a mutual kind of encouragement and comfort that we have received directly from God, from Christ. That this is the thing that we all fundamentally have in common. This is the thing that makes unity possible. That there is a, a spiritual bonding that because the Spirit of God indwells you individually and indwells me individually, therefore, we, I mean, think of it like bearing the same family name, right? Like there's a little bit of a whether you like it or not, one in whom the Spirit dwells is one to whom you are bound as a brother or sister. That there's a koinonia there. There's a fellowship there. And then affection and sympathy, these are beautiful words. These are words actually used, uh, that first one there is, is one of the, the most profound descriptions of Jesus in the gospel accounts. It's this, uh, doing a lot of Greek today. Uh, it's this crazy Greek word, splachnitsumai. Um, it's a verb. I didn't just make that up. That's a real word. Svachnitsumai. And what svachnitsumai means is, is it's a feeling of empathy from the guts. Svach is like your innards in Greek. That's literally where it comes from. It's a moving of the innards, which like what better way to describe what's in there than like svach, right? But it's a moving of the svach toward, toward the, the suffering toward the hardship. This is what Jesus, probably the most famous time where this is spoken of Jesus, is when he looks out at the crowd and he sees that they're sheep without a shepherd and he is moved to compassion for them and he feeds them. This is before the feeding of the 5,000. That word moved to compassion is splachnitsumai. And so this is saying that we have a common experience of the, of the deep, gut-level empathy of God toward us. 
And then the last one, uh, sympathy is kind of a, a funny translation here. It's, it's really the mercy of God. It's a word that Paul uses elsewhere always to be kind of a summary of the mercy of God. And what is the mercy of God? The mercy of God is that none of us have received what we deserve given who we are. That none of us have received the separation from God, the judgment from God, the punishment from God that we are due because we are all sinful, rebellious human beings. And yet in spite of that, what we've received instead of judgment, instead of separation, instead of alienation from God is the mercy of God. Do you see how all of these things have a way of putting us all on common ground? Do you see how it levels the playing field for us? Do you see how it's hard, given that the fundamental way that this identifies who you and I are is as those who have received something rather than as those who bring something to the table levels the playing field and makes unity possible? Right, in, in the last month, we've been going through the hardest season that I can remember that that we've ever been through as a family. And we have needed, we have needed the people of God like we have rarely needed the people of God before. And you know what we've needed most? We've needed encouragement and comfort. And you know how we've primarily experienced that? We've primarily experienced that through you, through you through a card, through a text, through prayers, through a DoorDash gift card, right? We've experienced that from those who my guess is provided that precisely because there was a time where you received that from others, right? And there's a sense in which we're very aware that these things are from God but they're from God through the hands and texts and thoughts and prayers of yours. This is why scholars disagree about what the exact source is. Is it God or is it the people of God? And so while I favor that the primary source of this is God, because I think he's talking about ultimate things like the sacrifice of Christ, like salvation, like the mercy of God in putting himself in our place in punishment, I want to have my cake and eat it too is I want to say what makes this difficult is because the primary way that God often provides these things is through his people. So do you see how this is a, a kind of feedback loop that insofar as you've received comfort from God, you become one who can comfort. Insofar as you have sensed the encouragement of God, you become one who encourages. Paul says this is the source. This is the fountainhead of your unity as the people of God. This is also why it is so important that all of us do what's necessary to experience these things firsthand from God, to actually make ourselves available to the love and mercy of God. There's nothing more fundamental to the Christian life than you yourself having an experience of the grace of God directly from him. And some of us can live an entire Christian life living off of the secondhand experience of others' encouragement and comfort from Christ. Others' koinonia 
in the Spirit and never actually have it for ourselves. And oftentimes when that becomes the case, we don't become conduits of that. Instead, we merely become gatherers of that from others secondhand. And so this is why uh, we do things like emotional discipleship here is because a lot of times the stuff that is keeping us from saying, yeah, that sounds a lot like my experience of Christ. That sounds a lot like my experience of the Spirit. It's because there's just other junk in the way causing us to not be able to receive all that God would have for us directly in terms of his love and mercy and grace and encouragement and nearness and love and care and intimacy toward us. But it's not merely so that I might have an experience. Do you see that? It's so that then that might become a fountainhead for others to be loved, right? I see this, I don't want to overgeneralize here. But I was thinking a lot about this this week, looking at this passage, is I think that there can be this tendency, I think it's a little generational, if I could be so bold, to say, right, like us younger folks, I'm going to make myself one of the younger folks. Us younger folks, right? Like, we're, we're down with counseling and therapy and these kinds of things, right? We see the need for it. My concern sometimes is that that comes along with this subtle sense in which until I'm fully healed and whole, I can't give anything to others. I can't love others. I can't serve at others. So I've got to get right, right? And I'm not trying to talk to... Anyone's specific situation or your marriage or whatever, I'm not your counselor, right? I'm just making a general statement here, is there can come with this sense of until I am completely whatevered, then I don't have to. I have no responsibility to the other. When actually the biblical vision of Christian community here is that, yes, seek your healing, Seek to, to understand how your past has influenced you and all that stuff. But it's so that you might lose yourself, die to self, have a self to die to, if you will, in order to move out and love and serve others. Because your freedom will not be found merely in finding healing yourself. True Christian freedom is found in becoming someone who is others-oriented, as we're about to see in just a couple verses. The opposite tendency can be I'm bearing a lot of weight in the world. I love and serve others a ton. It doesn't matter what's going on with me. It doesn't matter how much I actually resonate with this stuff being my own firsthand experience of God. Instead, I'm just constantly giving away to others. This can, this, this can be in, in a little bit of an older generation to say, yeah, but look at my life. My life has lived completely towards others. But what no one has given you permission to do is say, hey, do the work so that this stuff actually feels like it's firsthand between you and God. I think when we can hold, I'm glad I'm seeing uh, shaking heads because I'm not, I'm not like coming after anyone. I'm just saying we've, we've got to be careful in how we balance these things out, right? Like even in the way we do discipleship, there's a reason we do emotional discipleship and then immediately do relational discipleship. Because it's like emotional feels like it's a lot about you, a lot about your story, going backwards, figuring out how I've been impacted by my past. But then it's like, yeah, but then that actually has to move toward other people relationally. That's the movement of this text. So if these things are true, if you are experiencing the comfort the consolation of God yourself, 
What does he say? He says, make my joy complete by moving toward one another is the movement of this. Here's the one other thing that I'll say here is I, I just couldn't get away from these first two, encouragement in Christ and comfort from his love and the way that that's uniquely available among the people of God. I had someone in the midst of everything that we've been walking through say to me, the, the kind of thing only a certain person can say to you, someone who has real access in your life, who's able to say hard things a little bit like, huh, what do you mean by that thing? So follow me here. Is this person said, so I lost my mom a month ago, utterly devastating. And this person said, this is actually a season where I think it's healthy to look upward towards those who have actually suffered more in your community. Not in some weird way to say, okay, I lost my mom, but it could have been worse, right? Like, we're not talking about, like, weird. This is not at all to minimize what I'm walking through. Instead, it's to say, it's to work against the tendency of what pain and suffering, of what loss does, which is it isolates you and makes you feel like you're alone in it. And what looking around, even when I got up here the, the first week and just kind of gave a quick update, I looked around and immediately what the Spirit spoke to me is, you are not alone. Not even just in the sense of there's people here who love me, but you're not alone because I was looking at faces whose stories I know. And I don't mean minimizing my, I'm just saying it wants me to be alone and say, you're the only one who's showing up on a Sunday still worshiping God, having gone through what you went through. No, I'm not. Because I know the stories of the faces in this room, right? This is where I feel like my, this text was preached to us before I got up here, right? Toby's poem, right? Knowing Toby's story, and I won't share his whole story, it's not mine to share, but knowing Toby's story, and then hearing him read that poem and courageously say, yeah, I haven't been healed. Yeah, my pain hasn't been lifted, but I can reach and touch the scars of Jesus and that makes me show up again because Jesus has done what I ultimately needed. The other thing that, that pain and suffering can do, and, and this can so work against our ability to engage in community, is it can isolate you in the sense of I'm the only one. It can also isolate you in the sense of turning you cold in your ability to empathize toward others. And looking around and saying, no, there's others who have suffered like I'm suffering. Even having the courage to say, there's others who have suffered greater, horrible things than I have suffered. Keeps that ember burning of empathy towards the other. Keeps my, right, keeps my innards able to move around and have compassion toward others. Again, I want to be really careful, right? The person who said this to me knows me well enough. I hope you can trust me as your pastor and know well you know. I am not minimizing your story. Do you believe me when I say that? That is not what I'm saying. All I'm saying is we are in a room of grievers. We're in a room full of people mourning. Things, some things you know and so many that you don't know. I am not alone in this and you are not alone in this. Can I tell you, this is actually 
one way that I'd encourage you to be known in this community, or one reason why I'd encourage you to be known in this community, some of you have, have taken your stories and stuffed them down. And you come here on a Sunday, and you feel like the way to most meaningfully contribute to this community is to just be here and be happy, clappy, and hey, how are you? I'm doing great, so, so am I, right? When actually the gift that you might have is to be known in what you're actually going through so that someone can move towards you in compassion. But also because when you share that story, most often the response you'll get is some form of, yeah, same. Yeah, same. I've been there, right? There are many in this community who lost parents way too soon. You know who I found myself kind of gravitating towards? Yeah, those folks, right? You get it. You get it. Now, I might not completely get your pain, there's someone here who does, right? And there's certainly someone up there who does. And if he's called you to this community, he's probably called you because he knows the very face, the very hands, the very words, the very mouth that will be able to come alongside you and say, yes, yeah, same. I know what that's like. This is who he is. This is the source of our unity. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. I love this. Complete my joy. Paul, so far, has been pretty happy in this letter. He's pretty pleased with the Philippian church. This is not one of his, like, he's going after this church. He's like, no, I'm doing pretty good. And basically what he's saying here is, like, complete my joy. This is like that subtle parental, like, I'm so proud of you, don't mess it up, right? Like, I'm so proud of you, keep going, right? Like, complete my joy, fulfill, the word here is literally fulfill my joy. In other words, my joy is not just because of where you're at today, my joy is because of where I anticipate you getting, so, so let's get there, is what he's saying. How do they do that? By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Other than this having the same love, the being of the same mind, being in full accord and of one mind are all unbelievably similar constructions. They're practically saying the same thing. All of them are based, uh, again, on this, on this word that expresses so much more in the original language than we can in, in English. But it's this word that speaks of more so of mindset than mind. What he's not saying here is, all of you should have the exact same opinions about everything. All of you should think about everything the same way. Instead, what he's saying here is as you approach, especially within Christian community, as you approach one another, there should be a shared posture, a shared mindset, a shared, maybe the best English word that I could think of was mentality. There should be a mentality that you have that is shared. That's what unity looks like. And then he further defines it by saying, and this is where it gets helpful in defining this, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. So whatever this having the same posture is, it's the opposite of doing things from either selfish ambition or conceit. This word selfish ambition is actually a word that was used in Roman circles to speak of someone in the political realm let me get this exactly right. It's someone who sought political gain by unfair means. That's what this word means, the selfish ambition. 
is you would say, oh, that's someone with selfish ambition who is like a, a, a politicker, right? Like someone who would, who would work the angles for their own advancement in spite of ethics. Conceit is actually two words put together, the, the, the two words for empty glory. Uh, in other translations, it's vain glory. Nice little King James old school uh, translation of this word. Empty glory. So do nothing from this kind of politicking mindset. I want to get ahead here. Anybody ever seen this in churches? I'm not asking for hands, right? Like, I want to get ahead. I want to do what's necessary to be someone in this community. Also, don't do this from empty glory. Now, remember, you got to remember the overall context of this letter is we're in the Roman Empire where glory and honor was everything where everything you did was in order to lift up your visibility, your popularity, your honor in the eyes of other people. And basically what Paul is saying is that kind of honor and glory, it's empty. And that stuff in the church destroys unity when we play the way the world plays. He says, now remember where we started all the way back in 127 with only let your manner of life, remember? Only let your politics be different. Do you think that I can preach this right now in our cultural moment that the politics of the church needs to look different than the politics of this world, right? What are the politics of this world right now? It's I will do and say and align myself with whatever I need to so long as it identifies me with the right group of people, right? We've talked about this before, right? There's been two times, I'm not a big cable news guy, but there's been two times that I've flipped on cable news in, in the last couple of years. One was during the midterm elections. I was just so curious to see how Fox News and how MSNBC were covering the midterm elections, right? So you have Fox News who is like, you know, Basically, see, whatever, Joe Biden has ruined the nation and we all get it. That's why all these people are winning. And then you flip on MSNBC and it's like the bigots have taken over the country, right? And you're like, which is it, right? I also turned it on when the Ukraine war was happening. And MSNBC is basically like, this is all Trump and he didn't take, you know, Russia seriously enough. And then you turn on MS or you turn on Fox News and it's like, this didn't happen under Trump's rule. I guess that, you know, he handled it. And you're like, what are we doing, right? What are they doing there? What are they doing there? They're interpreting reality through a singular lens that accords with the foundation of their identity and the people that they assume are watching, the viewers, right, who pay their bills. They're taking reality, real things that are happening, and they have a mentality, they have a mindset, they have a posture, they have a perspective that says, this must be what is happening in this case. And I don't care whether it's reality or not. I don't care if I'm giving the full story. As long as it accords with what my tribe wants it to be, then that's the story that we're running with. That's the headline. The politics of the church. Now, I'm not even necessarily talking about how you interpret midterm elections or geopolitics. I just mean the way we go about things has to be different, has to be in a manner worthy, not of cable news, God help us, worthy of the gospel. 
And the gospel says, when I approach reality, my fundamental mentality, my fundamental posture towards it is first, foremost, and most deeply aligned with my Christian identity, right? What he's saying here is church to be unified, y'all all have to be Christians first in your posture, mentality, and mindset. And when anything else invades in that, you are likely moving into politicking like the world does. You are likely moving into empty glory that just wants to be right about a thing rather than being Christian about a thing. And do you know there's a difference between those two things? Kind of quite often. Because you can be very right and unchristian. Have we seen that? You can have Christian views that utterly lack a Christian posture. And the church should set the standard. And we shouldn't be observing what's out there and saying, well, I guess that this is how we play ball. I will align with my church until it comes in, con in conflict with an identity that I've brought into here that now is primary. Once my church challenges it, I'm out. There is a kind of, here's how I've put it, over the last two years, right? We've had a couple years as the church, capital C, and little lowercase c, Jacob Swell. There is a kind of posture. Let me say this. It is not characterized by one political view or the other. We got people who voted for both candidates sitting in our church, and I literally have no idea what the percentages might be. I kind of like that I don't know what the percentages might be. What I do know is we have a bunch of people, especially those who, who, of you who stayed through those years, we have a bunch of people who are able to hold tension and to say, okay, this is not really where I'm coming from, what the church is talking about right now. But my fundamental posture as a Christian is I could really likely be wrong about this. And so I'm going to sit here long enough to discern whether this is of God or of the world. And I can sit in that tension. I don't have to immediately get up and leave when some identity outside of my identity with the people in this room begins to get shaken. I don't have to just run and go, right? The ability to hold that tension, I think, is a fundamental Christian posture. To be able to say, I'm a Christian. Do you know how you get in? You get in by saying, I'm a hot mess, I don't know anything. I need a savior. I need to be rescued from me. And then to have the audacity to say, I am the arbiter of truth in this community, right? Like even for me to say that is insane, right? This is why I have to have a fundamental Christian posture, right? Because we've still as a community got to figure out how do, you, how do you handle power, right? How do you do conflict? How do you arrange things, right? Like we got stuff we got to figure out. But if we all have a fundamental Christian posture, if you and I come to the table and the very first thing we have is a shared primary allegiance and identity as Christians, that conversation goes very differently. I'm not saying that I've arrived at this. I'm not saying any of us have arrived at this. But this is where we got to get. This is what Paul is calling us to. A different kind of politics. And one that is worthy of the gospel. I love what one uh, Philippians commentator says, Mike, this is the quote, if you put that up. 
says, if we are to unlearn our commitments to individualism and begin to embody the sort of common life to which Paul and the Philippians call us, we must come to share with them the sense of being caught up into the movement of God's economy of salvation. I'll explain what that means in a second. Unless and until we see our lives as having been incorporated into that larger drama of redemption, we will never be able to see the necessity for the sort of ecclesial, that's church, common life, Paul urges on the Philippians. What he's saying here is, church, if we're going to be unified, we got to know there's a bigger story than right and left in American politics. We got to know there's a bigger story than whether or not I get my way in this community. And that bigger story is being caught up into the redemptive plan of God himself and to lock arms with each other and say, we ain't going to have the same opinion on everything. We're not always going to agree. We're going to come into conflict. But there's a story and there's a consequentialness to us moving forward as a community that is far more important than any of those things. Not that those things don't matter, but our eyes have to be set higher than the stories this world wants to tell us about our lives. One author says it this way, the church is called to be a faithful public performance in word and deed of the Christ story that we're about to go through in the next few verses. Let me say that again. The church, Jacob's Well, not just capital C, our little church here in central New Jersey, we are called to be a faithful public performance in word and deed of the Christ story. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that something worth living into? Isn't that something worth maybe putting aside some of our disagreements and saying there's something bigger that we can set our eyes on? Let each of you not look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. The verse before that says, uh, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. In humility, count others more significant than yourself. I, I love that call, right? That is what unity ultimately requires. Do you know that in the Roman Empire of that time, humility not only wasn't a virtue, it was an insult. It was a pejorative. It was a negative. It was practically a slur to call someone humble because the only way to be humble is to get humbled. Ooh, they, were, they went into debt and they were humbled. Ooh, those people were, were conquered, now they're humbled people. This was not a virtue. This was not something to be sought out. This was utterly new, right? Like, even now in Western culture, we kind of have a sense like, yeah, arrogance, like seeking your own honor is something that we, eh, it's like, it doesn't quite sit right with us. Humility is seen as at least performative humility. I don't really want to know your weaknesses and limits. Like, we'll jump all over those. But if you say you're limited and weak, like we kind of generally like that, not at that time. Paul is calling to willingly put themselves in a posture that the culture will say, you're being ridiculous. You look absurd and less than. And he said, but it's only when we're willing to choose humility, to humble ourselves, that we can count others more significant. And the exact phrasing here is not count others more important, count others better than ourselves. The literal language that's used here, again, we're, we're working within a certain cultural frame, is he's saying count others as having higher status than you. Count others as having higher status than you. Because do you know how we tend to treat those who have higher status than us? We tend to be very interested in them. We tend to care well for them. 
we tend to want to give them honor, right? Like if some, I don't know who an important person to you is, who's important to you? That person walks in, it's community meal. You get to sit at someone's table. Whose table y'all sitting at, right? What would a community look like if we all treated each other as having higher status? And this is especially hard in a community where a lot of y'all are like doing stuff in the world. Some of you are big deals, man. Have a bunch of people that answer to you at work, make a lot of money, right? To count other, right? And what we can very easily do at an instinctual, without pushing against it, is we can expect that same dynamic to be true here and then get disappointed when it's not. Some of you are so used to being in the lower position that you're not entirely comfortable with others caring for your needs. You don't even know what that feels like. I would encourage you to say, this gives you permission Say, oh, that's why that's happening. Because there's a Christian posture in this place that the world does not share. Now, let me encourage you. There are some people in this community who I know are out doing amazing things in the world and you would never know it. Because they're, they're, they're out parking your car. They're handing out programs. They're in the back running sound. That's the foundation of Christian unity. Are people who are willing to say, you know what, I'll serve. In spite of the fact that the world would call my instincts to be in this place, oh, I'm one who needs to be served. I'm one who, who you, they better know who I am and what they've got. I, Jacob's well, got a blue chipper. You know, like, Jacob's well, you're welcome. Got a first round draft pick in me, right? There are so many who have chosen against that this should encourage you, right? We're not always not getting the Bible right. <laughs> you know, like so often that's the assumption is like, so do it all right. You know, like this is, this is why we exist. This is why we're still here. It's because of so many who have chosen against that instinct and instead chosen to serve. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Had this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Mike, jump down to that last section there. What I love in the translation is uh, the, word, the word not, uh, or the word only, so check this out. The word only and the word also in that first phrase aren't, aren't in the original language. It actually reads, let each of you look not, there's no only, not to his own interests, but there's no also to the interests of others. Right? And you can imagine the people who are interpreting this like, well, that sounds like a little much, right? Like that sounds, I don't know, I should probably look out for mine and then help it out, right? This is how radical this, this text is. But here's the assumption that all the scriptures make, right? Like think of even Jesus. What does Jesus call us to do? He doesn't say love yourself, then love others. He says love others as you love yourself. Very few of us have to be taught how to love ourselves, right? Like, this is our instinct. I think that that's why this text shows up. Like, y'all out here taking care of your interests. Like, that's what you do naturally. He says, what if your instinct became, no, others first, others first, others first? What would that community look like? Here's what that community, here's why we fear that, because we say, well, then who's going to take care of my needs? Well, you're in a community where every single other person is putting your needs first. Imagine, imagine what that would look like. What would it look like? 
It would look like a bunch of people living worthy of the one they claim to be their Lord and Savior. Right? Look like a lot of Jesuses walking around. This is why he ends by saying, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Something I skipped in the first verse is, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, now how does this little section end, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ? It's bracketed by in Christ. None of this is, a, is remotely possible apart from the reality that we are a people whose fundamental identity is to be in Christ. Your reality has changed. Your nature, whether you know it or not, no matter how much you war against it, Christian, is changing. And it's changing because there's a, a person at work in you, changing you molding you, changing you at the level of your desires. And this saying, because of that, we can cast such a grand vision of this text. To be in Christ is to have, one author puts it, one citizenship within the realm shaped, determined, and ruled by Christ. To be in Christ is to have one citizenship, there's that word again, within the realm shaped, determined, and ruled by Christ. There is a way of doing things that this world naturally molds us into. As the people of God, there is a way of doing things that Christ is reshaping us, rediscipling us into. This is why, if I could offer a specific challenge, <laughs> This is why it's not good enough for us to say, uh, <laughs> how specific do I get? Look, we're not, the, we're not the friendliest church. Can I put that out there, right? Like, we're not the friendliest church. And some people come in, they're like, yeah, no one really spoke to me the first, like, month I was there. Then you know what happens? That person's here for, like, another month, and they're like, well, I ain't talking to anybody either, right? And that becomes this vicious feedback. And then a new person comes in, and they're like, not even the new people talk to me because there wasn't no one talking to me, right? And then some of us have been here 12 years, it's like, no one talked to me for my first five years here, right? Like, so I ain't talking to you, you gotta earn it, right? Like, you gotta show me something. Okay, clearly resonating, right? We're not the friendliest church. Why are we not the friendliest church? Why? What does everybody say? New Jersey. We're a Jersey church, baby. Like, we're a bunch of indigenous Jersey people. Do you see that's not good enough? Do you see that that's not good enough? It's saying we should, we should have a different way of being. And this whole text doesn't land in just be friendlier to new people. Um, be great if you were. So. It's community meal. Like, maybe don't just, like, talk to the same people, right? Like, let's. Um, that's what this is saying. It's saying, look, the world has molded you. And it's not good enough for the people of God to say, well, that's just the way the world around me is. This is how things are done at Starbucks. You can sit next to someone for six hours and not say a word. That's not good enough in the church because we share something deeper than lattes, right? <laughs> or whatever, right? Like we share a fundamental identity of being in Christ. He has called us to something great. There is a, there is a, a goal that the gospel sets that now we need to move towards being worthy of actually bearing the name that we graciously bear. This is the whole Christian life. We, we talked about this in any number of ways, is we become what we already are. 
And who we are is a people saved utterly and completely by the grace and mercy of God. We are a people, right? Like how much of the Christian life is just holding on in the midst of the waves that life throws at you and saying, God, please somehow comfort and console me through this. That's a lot of our stories is we're not here because we've gone from one victory to another victory. We're here because we're here. And sometimes that's all we got is I'm still here because somehow I found that he's sufficient. These are the things that bind us together. And therefore, there's a way of embodying that with and for one another that makes us a community worthy of being who Christ graciously has already made us. We're going to move into communion now, right? Because this table is a reminder of what we share together, that we're sinners saved by grace, all on equal footing at the foot of this meal, right? Body of Christ broken for us, blood of Christ shed for us. You may notice that the communion tables are up front. We are going to try this. So here's what we're going to do. Band, you guys can come get set up. Here's what we're going to do. If you, if some, many of y'all have never seen us do it this way. This is how we used to do it. Is you're going to come down these two aisles, okay? There's gluten-free in the middle. Gluten-free crackers. You can take the cracker, dip it into the... I'm guessing it's all grape juice. There's, are they labeled? That's juice. That's wine. There you go. And then over here is fully glutened. Um, the, uh, you're going to rip the bread and dip it into the wine or juice. They are indeed labeled. If all that creeps you out, we have pods for you to take. No shame. There are, right next to the third row back there, hand sanitizers. Doot, doot, right? There are a few rows back so that you might take it and you'll be dry by the time you come forward and rip your bread, okay? If you're in the first couple rows, you're gonna need to double back and go back so that you can boop, boop, and be dry by the time you come to the bread, okay? Why do we do this? We do this, and I felt like this was a good Sunday to move towards this. We do this because the church has always historically approached the table as a sign of our unity, that we all come to the same thing, that we all foundationally find our identity as we come to this table. One of the things that I have missed most is just the opportunity to watch people come forward to this table. One of the most powerful things about that video, right, there is something about just hearing other people articulate like, yeah, I really believe this stuff. I really believe that Christ was crucified for my sin and was raised victorious over it, right? Like, it's the reason why I cried both times I saw it. There's just something so powerful. Anyone who comes to this table, that's what you're proclaiming. That's why if you're not a follower of Jesus, you'll honor him way more by just staying in your seat. But if you are a follower of Jesus, join with all of us approaching, as the Apostle Paul says elsewhere, the one loaf, right, who is Christ. This is our identity. This is where our unity is found. So the band uh, will play as you come forward. I will not be leading you through it, so just go ahead and take it, dip it. You can take it here. You can go back to your seat uh, if, if you want to in order to take it. The one thing we would ask it's just don't pick up the cups and drink from them. I know that's a practice elsewhere. We're still like, you know, COVID times. Um, so if you could just dip, um, that, would be, that would be great. Uh, we'll sing this last song, and then I'll lead you to what's next. Come when you're ready.